Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. So glad you're listening. The intriguing idea at the heart of political scientist Brian Claus's new book is a chicken and an egg kind of query. Which comes first, the power or the corruption? In other words, do corrupt people want power so they can reap the rewards of their corruption? Or did the power they possess somehow debauch their character and open the path to corruption? Professor Kloss has explored these questions with what he calls mostly bad people, cult leaders, war criminals, torturers, generals, and despots. He writes, I try to figure out what makes them tick. Understanding them is crucial to stopping them. Or is it? As our conversation begins, I'm interested in whether you think the powerful and corrupt have an edge in this world, or do our checks and balances still work? Reach out as our discussion develops on Twitter, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I, M-P-R. Brian Klaus is a professor of global politics at University College London. His new book is titled Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us?, and he joins us from Winchester, UK. Brian, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Here's something that I I really wondered about as I realized how much access you've had to what you call bad people and these and these discussions that you've carried on with them. So do the war criminals, the generals, the torturers, the despots know in their damaged hearts that they are indeed corrupt? Do they have an awareness of that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that it depends on the person. Um, some are more open and some are less open. So I've had, you know, breakfast with former uh, despots and I've, uh, you know, sipped wine with people who are accused of being war criminals. And some of them are savvy. They understand exactly who I am. They understand that I'm writing a book about bad people in power and they're trying to spin me. And there's other people who are just totally oblivious to the idea that I could think that they were a monster. And so they think that they're doing this charm offensive, totally unaware that I'm, I'm going to leave and write about them uh, accurately uh, for, for the despicable type of person that they are. Yeah. One, one of the things I guess I've, I've considered is whether there are some people who possess some kind of psychological defense that protects them from the knowledge that the world sees them as deeply corrupt and bad. Maybe even some of their closest, you know, friends and comrades see them that way. But that, that creates this kind of obliviousness that, that you encounter. Yeah, so I talk about in the book this, this uh, cocktail of traits called the dark triad which, as the name suggests, has three parts, uh, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy, being a psychopath. And one of the things that's really interesting about those traits is that in moderation, they can be actually very, very good for people getting into power. They almost always want to seek power if they have those traits, but it actually is an advantage because the Machiavellians are schemers, they're strategists, the narcissists actually care about what other people think of them, and that can be an advantage as you're climbing the ladder. And the psychopaths don't care if they step on somebody uh, on the way to the top. But the problem is once they get to the top, those traits, especially in excess, end up making them very bad leaders. And so this is one of the paradoxes we have is that a lot of the systems we have around power 
promote and attract the very wrong kinds of people who then end up ruling poorly. And that also insulates them, as you, as you mentioned in your question, from the psychological disconnect of understanding that other people think they're terrible. Because if you're a psychopath, you simply don't care. Your brain is fundamentally broken. Your, your brain just doesn't work the same way as the rest of us. Your empathy is switched off by default. And as I say, you know, it can be good if it, if it requires ruthlessness to get to the top. But once you're there, you end up hurting a lot of people. And so one of the reasons why I focused on these disproportionately bad people in my research is because they do disproportionate amounts of damage. They're a minority of our leaders, but they're very, very dangerous. I mean, the thing about the dark triad is, you know, if you have this cluster of personality traits, as you've just said, you have you have the kind of wherewithal, I guess, to seek and obtain power. But if you look at many, many of the of the politicians who, let's say, reach, you know, uh, high echelons of power in the United States or in other Western democracies, you can probably find an element of narcissism, narcissism. You can probably find an element of some of these other personality traits in the dark triad. So how much is too much? When is it just enough? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I don't think you've had to look very far to find narcissism in U.S. politics recently. But right. I would say that, you know, I, I think that small doses are in all of us. Um, what we're really talking about with the dark triad are people who score off the charts on these on these traits, because all of us are a bit Machiavellian. I mean, when you go to the job interview, you're trying to think about how can I impress people? How can I put mm -hmm. my best foot forward? That's totally normal. Uh, if you're if you're trying to get to the corner office, it's normal to scheme a little bit. What we're talking about are the defectives, uh, the people who are are so consumed with these traits that power is absolutely magnetic to them, that they can't resist its allure. And one of the things that I, you know, that that dro drove me to write this book was that I started my my research both in my PhD and in my research since in rooms with awful people, as we said before. I mean, despots, <laughs> war criminals, torturers, etc. But then I started to talk to people around me, and when they would describe the despots or tyrants in their lives, there were some overlapping traits. And I started to think, you know, is it just that the person who is you know, the ruthless leader of Thailand who used live rounds on protesters, is that person fundamentally similar to somebody who is the abusive mid-level manager or is there something different? And I think the answer is that it's a, it's a bit of both. I mean, there are similar traits certainly in bad leaders, whether it's in boardrooms or in, you know, bureaucracies or, or somewhere in a palace, mm -hmm. but there's also systems that are massively swaying behavior. And I think, I think that's why that sort of chicken or the egg problem that you highlighted in the introduction is so important, because if somebody is a fundamentally rotten person to begin with, the antidote to dealing with them is different than the antidote to dealing with a fundamentally good person who's been turned bad by a system that corrupted them. And so I think it is absolutely both the case that power attracts corruptible people and that power corrupts people, but it's not always in the same person. And so diagnosing that is crucial to getting better leaders in, in, in charge and also making them behave better once they get there. Yeah. I mean, you say, you write in the book, too much attention is paid to the notion that power corrupts. Not enough attention is paid to why corruptible people seek power. I'm interested in how you tried to wrangle that with the interviews and the research and the scholarship that you've done. Where have you come out on that? 
Yeah, so I think this is the big thing that we get wrong on this subject, and it's the it's the big takeaway that I hope people get from the book is we always have whenever I talk to people about you know the the leaders or the awful people, whether it's the homeowners association tyrant or the tyrant actually in charge of a country, we focus on who's there, who's already in charge, who's already in power. We don't focus so much on the 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 steps before that, the step of who actually wants power and who's good at getting power. And the analogy I, I, I say to people is, you know, if you went to a high school basketball tryout, you would be really astonished if the people who, who arrived at that tryout were of average height. You're going to have a self-selection effect. The tall kids are more likely to try out. The same is true for power. Power-hungry people are more likely to seek power, and often they're better at obtaining it. So, you know, one of the things that I think is really, really important is how we design systems to get the right people into power. And this is where the, the, the example that, that I, you know, came across in my research that I think shows this so well is a study that was done with dice rolling where they asked people to roll a dice 42 times. And they said, you know, every time you get a six, you get a certain amount of money, but you get to, you get to self-report your scores. You get to tell us how many sixes you got. Now, one person in the study in India was so brazen as to write down 42 sixes in a row, but most people, (laughs) you know, sort of honestly reported the ones who lied when they studied them were disproportionately likely to say that they intended to join India's corrupt civil service where they could extract bribes. When they reran the study in Denmark, a, a country that has much cleaner civil servants and much less corruption, it was exactly flipped. The, the people who cheated on reporting their dice scores were the ones that were least likely to want to become bureaucrats wow. to extract bribes. Hmm. So a rotten system attracts rotten people and a good system attracts good people. And I think that's something that can counteract that natural impulse that power-hungry people have to seek and obtain power. There's, there's a little bit in the book, in, in, this, in this part of the book, about a colleague of yours at your, at your college who searched for the, for the leadership gene to try to figure out why some people want power. If I remember this right, the answer wasn't very definitive. His research did not turn out to say, here's what we now know about this leadership gene. Yeah, this, so this is a great example of the, of the method that I tried to use in this book. So first, I, I looked for whether there had been research about, is there a genetic basis for power seeking? Is there, mm-hmm. is there a certain gene we can isolate? Some of us want it, some of us don't. We can observe this, right? There's, there's people around us who definitely want power and people who don't. So it's natural to wonder, is this just something that's hardwired into us? And what the researchers found was that, yes, there is a gene that is highly correlated with people who become leaders, The problem, as I argue in the book, is, well, that's not that satisfying because that may be a gene that helps you get power. There are certain traits in the ways that we've designed systems of promotion, for example, that are tied to demographic characteristics, personality traits, whether you're outgoing or affable in a job interview and so on. So we can't say that the gene makes you seek power or get power. And so it doesn't really answer that question. So then what I did was I tried to approach the question from a different perspective of talking to people who are, for example, the daughter of a dictator. So I went to Paris and I had a a glass of wine with the daughter of the former emperor, as he called himself, of the Central African Empire, now the Central African Republic, who uh, apparently ate people. He was a cannibal. And and one uh, instance allegedly served uh, human flesh to a visiting dignitary. So an extreme outlier on the power-seeking monstrous behavior you can sometimes have in these situations. 
And I, you know, I asked her, you know, do you think that this is something that's been imprinted on you? How much is this nature and how much is this, is this nurture? And it was, it was fascinating because even as the descendant of this monstrous person, she was, she was proud of her background. And when I asked her about the future of the Central African Republic, I said, you know, are you going to be back on the throne someday, so to speak? She gave the answer that American politicians give when they're about to run for office, which said, I'm not ruling anything out. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, now, of course, this is not definitive. It's an anecdote. But I think that there's this approach of trying to understand the stories around power with the hard research. And some of the answers are quite definitive. And in, in, in whether power corrupts, we know it does. There's, there's a lot of evidence that this is true. Whether certain people seek power, we also know that's true. But how we can determine how much of that is genetic and how much of that is learned, the, the jury's still out on that question. You know, the other thing that your book made me think about was the way we perceive the value of power and what corrupt people may do with that power. I thought about Augusto Pinochet, you know, the Chilean dictator. He killed more than 3,000 political opponents. He tortured many people, including Michelle Bachelet, who rose to the presidency of Chile. Yet, right now, Chileans are, are still debating his legacy because some believe that he stopped an evil of communism and that that was worth the evil that he perpetrated as he tortured, tortured his political opponents. I, you know, perception and the way we kind of uh, uh, um, attach value to that kind of corruption is interesting too. How, what, what have you take an example like him? What do you do with that? Yeah, so, so Pinochet is a, a great example, actually, because I have a chapter in the book. I, I already said, you know, there's there's a chapter that shows how power corrupts. It changes your brain chemistry. It affects your perception of others. It makes you ruder. There's, there's a whole bunch of things it does to you. But I also push back on that idea a little bit, and I think this is relevant for Pinochet, where I say. There's also things that happen to you when you end up in power, particularly in a place like you know Chile in the 1970s, where you're forced to make decisions that normal people don't have to make. Now, this does not absolve it, right? I think that somebody like Pinochet needs to be, in, in, you know, the, the accountability around him is to the utmost degree because he perpetrated atrocities. So it's not mm -hmm. to excuse it, but it's to understand the dynamics. So if you're somebody who is, the way I put it early on in the book is I say, you know, what would you do if you were all of a sudden just a, a, a magic wand was waved and you become the dictator of Turkmenistan or the dictator of Chile in the 1970s? And the answer is you would do things that you wouldn't normally do because every single day you would have trade-offs that you would have to grapple with of staying in power, making sure your enemies didn't kill you, you know, being able to get your agenda passed in some way. And you'd make utilitarian calculations probably on a reasonably regular basis, which is why a lot of people don't want power. The idea of being the dictator of Turkmenistan is absolutely alluring to the wrong kinds of people. And to most of us, it's, it's horrific to think about. So when you think about a place like Chile, the, the point I make is that people who end up in positions of power have much more opportunity to do harm. And also they can appear to get worse when they're actually identical in their personality. And what I mean by that is power would look like it's corrupting you if you just got good at being bad. So if you were always a rotten person, but you figured out how to manipulate the system to produce better results, quote unquote, for yourself, in other words, you were, you were better at being awful, on paper, it would look like you got corrupted because your, your outcomes would get worse. 
But in reality, all that's happened is you've figured out how to, manip- uh, how to manipulate the system. And I think stuff like that around Pinochet is worth keeping in mind, not to absolve, but to understand the dynamics at play. And also to think about if we had a perfect leader in charge of a place mm-hmm. like Turkmenistan or Chile in the 1970s, would they be perfect? I, th- I think the answer is inevitably no, because systems massively sway how people behave. I mean, we all look to George Washington, and you note this in the book, as the exemplar of someone who used his power for good and then knew when to surrender the power. So if George Washington was running Chile in the 1970s, would his legacy look quite different? Yeah, you know, I think it would. And I think this is something where there are rare occasions I've come across in my in my research traveling around the world. Uh, for example, I did field research in Tunisia shortly after the Arab Spring. And, and, and the party that won after the Arab Spring happened relinquished power voluntarily. I, I mean, I can count on one hand the, the times that I've seen that and had it not be just a ploy, but actually a genuine attempt to, to heal a country or, or make its democracy take root and so on. So the point that I tend to see, I mean, I, 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 I grapple with this question in a, a chapter called Bad Systems or Bad People. Mm-hmm. And it ended up producing one of the more interesting bits of research I did for the book where I flew out to Vermont uh, and I took a ski lesson with Paul Bremer, the man who once was known as the Viceroy of Iraq. He ruled Iraq effectively That's in 2003. Very interesting. And uh, he's now a ski instructor in in Vermont. <laughs> and <laughs> so I, I, I hit the slopes with him. We chatted on the chairlift and I went back to his house with his little dog, Bella, and we chatted about what, what happened to him. And what's fascinating to think about was that you know, he was a, a former ambassador to places like Malawi and Norway and served with distinction, you know, never suggested anything out of the ordinary, just was a generally good diplomat. When he got to Iraq and the system was collapsing and, and careening towards civil war, one of the first suggestions he made in his post was to shoot looters, people who were stealing you know, goods from stores and creating general chaos. Now, it's a monstrous proposal. I mean, if you proposed it in the United States, you would get prosecuted. But what he said to me, which I'm, you know, I'm not morally sympathetic to, but I understand his point of view, was he said, there was going to be a civil war. I was trying to stop the civil war. And I thought, you know, if we sent a message and shot some looters in the legs, that maybe order would be resumed and we'd actually save a heck of a lot more people. Now, the point is not whether you agree or disagree with that choice. The point is he never would have proposed that in Norway, right? Not in a million years. And so the, the, the thing that I tend to uh, fixate on when I'm analyzing these people is, is Paul Bremer a vicious, violent person to begin with? Or did he end up in a system where vicious, violent choices suddenly made sense to him? And I think that diagnosis is the crux of the debate around power. Because again, you know, if it's a, just, if it's a vicious, violent person to begin with, get him out of power. That's, that's the point. Mm-hmm. If it's not, reform the system and you might actually get some results. You're not going to turn a psychopath good by changing the system, but you might turn a decent person uh, into something better if the system improves. And I think that's where the, the book grapples with this about the individual versus the context in all these different situations. I don't want to leave Bremer here for a minute, but I want to remind listeners, if you've just joined in, I'm Carrie Miller and I'm having a conversation with Brian Kloss. He's a professor of global politics at University College London. And his new book that we're talking about, super nuanced and interesting research and big questions. Yeah, big ideas. It's titled Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. And as you listen to our conversation develop, I'm interested in whether you think the powerful and corrupt 
have an edge in this world. Yes, um, many of us are cynical about this and would answer that absolutely, but do our checks and balances still work? You can reach out on Twitter. It's at Carrie NPR. Brian, one of the thing, one of the stories that Paul Bremer tells you is he goes to this neonatal unit and he sees this little baby and she's nearly six months old. And this is the moment that he realizes that he is the guy who is going to have to ensure that electricity gets into the hospital. And so, and he, and he has this, I think he says to you, there was nobody else around who could do it or make it happen. And when you put, now that is the highest ethic, right? That we would want somebody who's doing the kind of work that he was doing to observe, to do anything he has to do to save that child's life, to get the electrical grid working. But I, if I hear you right, some of the things that he might have to do to make that work would look corrupt or, or pretty bad from the outside if we didn't have the whole context. What would you say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are a series of trade-offs that are impossible when you end up inheriting a dictatorship, as he did. Um, and I think that one thing that he did that was very good in this situation, which is why I mentioned that story, is he then asked every meeting to start with an update about the situation of electricity in Iraq, because he understood right. how central right. that was to not just saving babies and neonatal units, but also to getting people to be on the side of democracy and change because the new regime was working. That was the idea. Now, you know, I think one of the things that happens with somebody like Bremer is that there are very strong views on the Iraq war on both sides of, of, of the divide. So he's written off by people on the political left. He's sort of viewed as a failure by many people on the political right because of what went wrong in Iraq. My point wasn't to judge him for his outcomes. It was to actually understand him. And I think that's the thing that, you know, I, I tried to do in this book is to say, these people are out there. You know, when he tells me about this, this moment where the weight of responsibility just crushes him, you know, that's mm -hmm. insightful. It's, it's, it's important to understand. And one of the things that sometimes people say to me is, why do you sit down with some of these people? You know, why, why do you go and try to ask them, you know, what makes them tick or what they were thinking? And what I always say is, you know, if you had somebody who studied elephants, who had never interacted with an elephant, it would be quite bizarre, <laughs> right? And, and I'm a political scientist who's trying to understand why disproportionately powerful, often bad people inflict so much damage on the world. I want to talk to them. <laughs> and so, you know, the, 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 the sort of partisan divides around some of these people blind us to some of the insights they can offer. And, and there's a chapter later on in the book that speaks to this where I talk about the weight of responsibility directly and I mm -hmm. juxtapose um, the head of the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund, who met with all of the, the families of 9-11 of victims before he awarded them a dollar value that was supposed to be uh, an equivalent of what their loved one's life was worth. With That was uh, Ken, remind me what his last name is. Ken Feinberg, I'm sorry, yes. So Ken Feinberg, you know, he, he sat down with everybody who would meet with him before he awarded the dollar value. And he said it took this massive toll on him. Emotionally, he was just wrecked every day because all he did was he sat and listened to these horrific stories of people losing somebody on 9-11. And then he sat down to figure out how much money to give them. And I think, you know, 
that's, I think, admirable. I think there's something nice about the idea that if he's going to have to make a decision that's going to have life-changing consequences for another person, particularly the victim of a, a terrible tragedy, he should feel that burden too. And I think one of the problems we have in modern societies, a lot of our leaders are by design distanced psychologically and physically mm-hmm. from the people who are affected by their decisions. And I think we can re-engineer society in ways that will probably change that and make them behave much better. So I, I found the learning that corrupt people engage in to get better at corruption really interesting. I mean, it, it made me wonder if this explains someone like Mugabe and Gaddafi and Mubarak in Egypt and Jama in Gambia and Duterte in the Philippines. I mean, they they seem to follow one another's corruption playbook. You you even see that in, you know, somewhere like Cuba when everybody holds higher hopes that the Castro regime is over and then the next government comes in and uses a lot of the techniques that the previous corrupt government used. Will you talk a little bit about what you learned about the learning? Yeah, sure. So this this concept on the sort of level of dictators is known as authoritarian learning. And believe it or not, dictators hold conferences, basically, they're more informal than perhaps an academic conference, where they will uh, talk to each other about what worked and what didn't, you know, oh, I came up with a great way of rigging an election. Have you thought of using this? Uh, You know, this is the way that I crushed my enemies without (laughs) getting a headline in the New York Times. And I'm not really joking about this. This is actually what they do. I mean, this is just mind blowing, Brian. It's genuinely something that happens and they look to each other. Sometimes it's not, you know, the actual conference where they fly in and they have presentations of, you know, how to get rid of a dissident. But but they do look at what each other, what, what the other one does, and they learn over time. I, I want to ask you about the Assads because the current leader of Syria is the son of the last dictator of Syria. And before the current leader, the current Assad, took power and and engaged in this, ignited this civil war, you know, there was this belief, I think he's a physician, there was this belief that he was a better, a better copy. He wouldn't be doing the kinds of things that his father did when he was in power in Syria. But pushed up against the wall, look at the kinds of things that Assad has done in this in the civil war to hang on to power. I guess I'm just, and, and given that conversation that you had with the daughter of, of the terrible dictator, I mean, does the learning also happen within families and do these sons and daughters believe that possessing this power and then using this corruption to hang on to that power is somehow kind of a birthright? Yes, I think they do think it's a birthright. And I do think they think that they're acting on behalf of their family's legacy and so on. And there is learning within families. But the the, the real dynamic that I think is important to highlight in these dynasties and also these longstanding dictatorships is how affecting the costs of losing power or gaining power affects the behavior of people in charge. So with Assad, for example, I mean, what happens if he loses power now? Almost certainly a one-way ticket to The Hague, a prosecution, probably more likely he'll get killed. Um, and so the costs are very, very high. I, I, I crunched the numbers in sub-Saharan Africa over the last sort of 50 years or so, and, and 43% of presidents who lost power were either jailed, exiled, or killed. 
So rotting in a prison cell, never able to go home or dead. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, Mitt Romney went on a book tour. Uh, Hillary Clinton went on a book tour. I mean, (laughs) the costs of losing power are different and they cause people to behave differently. If you think you're going to die, if you lose power, well, you're going to do whatever you can to stay in power. Now, the flip side of that is the way that the costs are associated with gaining power also changes who puts their hat in the ring, so to speak. So one of the things I'm worried about in the US right now is, you know, the reason I got into into politics, I'm a native Minnesotan. My mom was on the uh, Hopkins school board. She ran for office uh, for, the, for the Hopkins school board. And it got me interested in politics. Now, when I think about modern U.S. politics, people who are in school boards right now are getting death threats. They're getting harassed. Their children are facing people screaming at them over, over mask mandates or public health guidance. And you think about, you know, if somebody just wants to serve their community, but they don't actually want power and they have to weigh that up against the risks of their family facing potential physical violence or at least intimidation and harassment, the good people are just going to bow out. Right. They're going to say there's no real benefit here. There's a huge cost. And the only benefit is that I was going to do my bit grudgingly to try to help my kid's school district be a little bit better. The power hungry people are still going to go for it. So, you know, I've seen this dynamic around the world where when, when power becomes toxic, in a country, it's like a red carpet to the worst people among us because they're the only ones who are willing to stomach the costs because the benefit of being in charge is so great. Brian Kloss is with us if you've just tuned in to the conversation. He's a professor of global politics at University College London, spends a lot of his time researching power and corruption. And he's out with a new book called Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, joining us from Winchester UK. I want to ask you this question that I'm asking listeners to contemplate. In democracies like ours, in in Western countries that consider themselves republics or democracies, do you think the checks and balances are robust enough to protect the system and citizens against corruption? I'm going to ask you about how we perceive those checks and balances, but But looking at this objectively and what's happening in some places in Europe and what is happening in the United States, I'd love your insight on that. Yeah, I think I think there's uh, there's a series of parts in the book where I talk about the power of oversight and accountability. And there's no question that oversight and accountability change behavior. So, you know, when consequences are inflicted on bad behavior, there's less bad behavior behavior in the future. That makes complete sense. But it's only half of the equation. Because you need the people to care about it. And I think one of the things that's happening in modern political systems, even in democracies in the US and Europe and so on, is there is a certain kind of person who doesn't care about the exposure of corruption, doesn't care at all. And one of the things that I grapple with in the book is, you know, I was asking big questions about why certain people seek power, why they're good at getting it. But I'm also asking, why do we give power to bad people? Why do we not mm-hmm. care sometimes mm-hmm. when they abuse their authority or uh, you know, commit acts of corruption so long as they're on our political team? And I think that question is a much harder one for us to grapple with because it puts the, the onus on us to actually think maybe we're responsible for this. And, and we are because you know, one of the concepts about power, it's relational. In other words, you can't be a leader if you have no followers. And so we give people power. Now, 
the checks and balances in the United States are institutionally robust. We have them. But if people just don't care and don't hold their own party accountable, then yeah, I mean, you're going to have a very disappointing set of results because the accountability only bites if the people who put you there care about how you're behaving. And I think what's happened in the United States, for example, is most districts in the US are uncompetitive. I, I crunched the numbers around the 2016 uh, elections and the average US House race had a margin of victory in 2016 of 37.1%. So that's oh a 70 30 gosh. landslide effect. Are you serious? Yes. Oh. It's it's mostly uncompetitive. There's a, you know the, the the control of the house is is determined by a, a minority of swing districts, but most districts are totally uncompetitive. So what does that do? Well, it means that the actual election is the primary. The primary is a place where the diehards vote and those diehards don't want you to compromise. Is it a surprise that we have toxic politics and little compromise when the politicians are responding to this? So, you know, you can have all the journalistic exposés you want. If the people who are putting you in office don't care, well, all of a sudden the checks and balances don't really matter. And I think that's something where we have to think about ourselves as much as the people who rule over us. I mean, the other thing that that does is with these highly uncompetitive districts and the primaries being the basically what, you know, where the hinge of the election is, is it discourages good people, the good people that we've talked about that we would like to think, I've got something to say, and I've got a role to play in this. You look at a race like that and think there's no point. Yeah, I mean, I and I think this is where the responsibility also goes on political parties, business leaders, you name it, to recruit people who don't want power. Hmm. And I think you know one of the one of the parts of the book that's that's when I was researching it just has completely reshaped my thinking was a story around uh, police. Actually, it's not it's not mm-hmm. related to politics, but it's about mm-hmm. policing, which is a very important issue in the United States and around the world in terms of reforming it. And you know, I, I looked at this um, advertisement that I found on the Doraville, Georgia Police Department. Doraville is a town of about ten thousand people, just outside of Atlanta, with you know. The, sort, the same sort of crime rate you would associate with a 10,000 person town uh, in a suburb. And yet the, the video shows these guys in military fatigues screaming into view in a tank in their SWAT team gear, throwing smoke grenades out of the top of the tank, shooting some, some guns, and then getting back into the tank and screaming back off into the distance while the, the Punisher logo uh, comes into view. The Punisher is a fictional character known for vigilante justice and torturing criminals. And I thought to myself, okay, let's imagine that I just sort of thought I'd like to be a community service officer who serves my community and does you know well for others. And I look at that video and I'm like, I don't think that's the place for me. I don't think that's what I was <laughs> right. envisioning with policing. Poli- people who think that the police are supposed to be a military force that shoots people are going to sign up for that. And so I interviewed the head of New Zealand's police recruitment. And what they did was they said, look, most police officers are good people, but if you are a bully or a bigot or an abusive individual, the idea of being an abusive individual with a badge or in the U.S. case with a gun might be really appealing to you. So we need to counteract that. So they designed a recruitment scheme that had these viral, very funny videos. People can Google them. They, they've got millions of views on YouTube and so on. And they depict a different kind of officer. It's often demographically diverse. And the officers stop to help an old lady cross the street. And finally, at the end of the video, the person that they're chasing turns out to not be a person. It's a dog who's stolen somebody's purse. 
And on screen, rather than the Punisher logo, it says, do you care enough to be a cop? That's the slogan they use. <laughs> and you know, lo and behold, <laughs> their applications shot up. The applications came from different kinds of people. Uh, the rates of abuse fell. And they had much better community relations because minorities who were depicted in the video, uh, which were underrepresented in the New Zealand police force, put their hat in the ring and said, I want to be a cop. So the point here, and this, this has a lesson for politics, is you can't just expect this to happen automatically. Power-hungry people will always apply. They'll always run for office. People who don't want power won't. So unless you counteract that with a del deliberate strategy, you won't actually get the results that you want. Boy, you know, that is such a, it's such a mind shift and such an important, you know, adjustment of the lens. The people that don't step forward, they may very well be the people that we need. And the people that do step forward, they might very well be the people who should be kind of pushed back. Is it? Can it be as simple as that? Yeah, there's a, there's a great quote. One of my favorite uh, novelists is Douglas Adams, and he has a quote that effectively says, "Anybody capable of of getting themselves made president is automatically ill suited for the job." <laughs> I think there's <laughs> there is some truth to that in the sense that uh, the skills required to seek and obtain power in the modern world are often amplifying and elevating people who shouldn't be in office. Uh, I can read our listeners' minds, and you know what they're thinking, Brian. Why haven't we talked about Donald Trump? This is what the January 6th commission is doing right now. They're investigating whether former President Trump tried to use the power that he possessed to corrupt the transition of power. You haven't, you have not talked about Donald Trump, but I don't think you've mentioned him in the book, have you? You're right. The, the word Trump does not appear uh, in the book, and that was a <laughs> deliberate choice. Why? First off, I've written extensively about Donald Trump. I, I write a column for the Washington Post. And if people want to know what I think about him, they can also read my book uh, about <laughs> Donald Trump's attack on democracy. So they can probably get a sense of, of what I think. But the reason I, I, I didn't include him was actually sort of the reason of how I, I talked about Paul Bremer earlier without a, a specific moral judgment is I think some of these ideas that I tried to grapple with are more universal than our political divides. I think that when I talk to people, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, they say something similar to me. They say, why is it that the people around me are good and decent people? And when I look to those in charge, they're not. And that's more universal than what your assessment of Donald Trump is. So I wanted to reach out to an audience that isn't going to instantly shy away from discussing what's broken about power writ large, simply because they disagree with the politics of the author or the poli you know, the, a specific example that's polarizing because I don't think that this problem is a problem that's tied to Donald Trump. I think that this problem is tied to the systems of power that we have and the people who gravitate towards them. And I would hope that somebody who thinks completely the opposite thing about Donald Trump from me will still lis listen to what I have to say and, and think, okay, you know, this is actually a bigger issue than whether you think that Donald Trump or Joe Biden is a better president. And so that's why, by design, I didn't pick uh, him. Also because we've talked about him nonstop, let's be honest, for the last five years, and I think people are sick of it. So I wanted to talk about something else for a change. I, I do understand that. But I, I, I want to bring you back to the January 6th commission. I mean, what they're doing is, is not only essential for history. I'm sure we agree on that. But it's going to be very important for our perception of what we believe is proper to use a you know an underwhelming word in the pursuit of power that's isn't that exactly what they're doing they're going to try to 
to bring evidence forward and give us some kind of report on what is legal and constitutional in the pursuit to hang on to power. Yeah, so I'll I'll, I'll answer this question. Uh, you, you you've drawn me on it, so I'll, I'll answer it. And I, I think the I think you're completely right. I think that the January 6th commission, the investigation to it, the accountability around it is essential to American democracy. And I think that the the lessons from it are, are, are sort of twofold. One is that without accountability, the people who were involved in it will have felt that they got away with it. And therefore, they will think that that is a new normal that they can replicate in 2022 and 2024. It's extremely dangerous. Right. But more profound than that, and this is where I really worry about this, it's where I, again, I think that the focus on... The, the sort of tip of the iceberg, the people who are currently in power obscures some of these dynamics. It's who are going to become the next generation of Republicans if they believe, the people at the local level and at the sort of you know state level, believe that the way you play politics is by lying about election results and then using political violence to achieve power when you don't get the election result that you wanted. And, and so mm-hmm. you know, we're creating a pipeline uh, of future authoritarians, in my opinion. In that. So, so I read your column in the Post, and you wrote recently Republicans could conceivably abandon such practices, the ones you've just described, if their leaders were being pressed by their own supporters to be more democratic. Instead, we're seeing the opposite GOP voters want more authoritarianism. You know, I've listened to Ann Applebaum, who lives in Poland and writes a lot about Western democracy from from the European point of view. She, I mean, she echoes this. There is a cohort of citizens, it seems to me, growing more powerful, growing louder and more powerful, who say, I want more authoritarianism from my government. And I, I, it, it's puzzling as to how we got to this. And given your research, I wonder if you've, I know you wrestle with this in, in the column, what, what conclusions you've come up with about why? Okay, so I'll, I'll answer this question two different ways. One is more sort of contemporary and, and, and one is more about humans as a species. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so okay. the contemporary answer is that you know, it relates to some of the aspects of incentives that Republican politicians face right now. And the group of people I would call authoritarian voters in the United States and in places in Europe where democracy is declining, where they actually are voting for autocratic style politics. And a lot of that has to do with, I talked about gerrymandering before, because those people get a much more amplified voice in uncompetitive elections where the primary only matters, but also with things like polarization, where the idea that hatred for your political opponent excuses uh, politics by any means necessary, a Machiavellian approach to getting power and so on. So I think a lot of these things are are happening at the same time that there's also a demand uh demand versus supply problem, right? So there have always been authoritarian voters in countries around the world. There haven't always been a supply of authoritarians on the ballot Mm -hmm. in Western democracies. So that's one of the problems that we've faced recently is that there are now there in in many elections, there are candidates who continually lie about the 2020 election and support, you know, claims about jailing opponents or calling the press the enemy of the people and so on. So there's a supply problem there. Now, there's a bigger issue at at stake here, and I explore this at length in the book, 
about why human beings are drawn to strongman leaders. And the term is is not an accident. I mean, one of the things that I found fascinating in reading uh, the research for this book and talking to experts was evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology, this idea of sort of why are we as a species picking certain leaders? So I'll talk about the evolutionary psychology stuff very briefly. It's just, if you think about the 200,000 years that human beings have been on the planet, um, our brains have fundamentally not changed that much over that 200,000 years. There hasn't been enough time for our brain structures to evolve that much. Our societies have massively shifted. So there's this saying among evolutionary psychologists that we have a stone age mind in, uh, in a sort of modern skull. Uh, and that's maladapted. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not fit for purpose in the modern era. What strong men have figured out is that because of that past, hunter-gatherers in the Stone Age actually sometimes during times of crises would want to get, gravitate towards a strong man, a physically large man who would be better at hunting. And as a result of that, when you do psychology research and you study people and say, you know, here's a scenario, what sort of leader do you think you want? If you prime them by talking about a war or a famine or a pandemic or any sort of conflict, the results across the board, no matter how many times you do this study, is that they gravitate towards a physically large male. (laughs) And what has happened is that politicians have figured that out. I mean, Vladimir Putin poses shirtless regularly. (laughs) We don't ever stop and pause and think, how absurd is this? I mean, let's imagine you go into your dentist and he goes and does 20 push-ups before he cleans your teeth (laughs) to show you he's going to be great at cleaning your teeth. You would report him to the licensing board. And yet in politics, we sort of accept this chest beating. And it's because of some of these templates that lie latent in our brains. And some of us are very persuaded by those messages. So it's a it's a supply problem. It's a demand problem. It's, it's, it's evolutionary psychology. It's polarization. A lot of things are happening all at once that I think explain the rise of the modern authoritarian. And none of them are, unfortunately, easily solved issues. Here, here's a question to, to kind of round out our discussion. I wonder if the resilience and the strength of a democracy relies in some part on you know, a widely shared view of what corruption is. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's really important to any sort of accountability. Because the problem is, you know, I don't, I don't define corruption in the book. Um, and it's, it's sort of by design because it is one of those, you know it when you see it things. Right. At right. the same time, when you do try to actually define corruption, it's usually referred to as, you know, using public power for private gain. Uh, that's often in, pl- in politics. But of course, that doesn't always fit for the boardroom and so on. So you have to make it elastic for business and all this. But I think that if we can't agree what's over the line, and that's you know becoming increasingly difficult in the United States, how can we expect our checks and balances to work? How can we expect journalism to expose wrongdoing if two people from different sides of the political spectrum look at the same action and one of them says thumbs up and one of them says thumbs down. Mm, mm-hmm. And I think that's where, you know, the breakdown of something that political scientists refer to as, you know, a, a loss of shared reality speaks to these problems because there are many mechanisms by which we can hold politicians, business leaders, et cetera, accountable and they work, but they're only effective if they're agreed upon by those who are being overseen by the leaders that they're actually over the line. And that, that breakdown I think is very, very worrying because at some point you just say, I did it. Right. <laughs> you know, you just admit it and think there's no consequence. I mean, I I'm thinking about impeachment and how politicized 
it was going back to Clinton, I don't know, maybe before that, and how some people are just like, well, part of my tribe. Uh, that's just the other side trying to take him, him or her down. I mean, again, this kind of comes back to the checks and balances. The, the infrastructure to check and balance our democracy seems to now rest on who I vote for and which tribe I think I belong to. And that is going to, that's going to color the way I see the necessity for that check or balance. That's frightening. Yeah, and I think you know I think it's interesting that you mentioned Clinton uh, prior to the the Trump impeachments because I think the shift there is a, is a profound one in the sense that I think Democrats thought that what Bill Clinton did was wrong. Yes, I, I, I don't think there was a debate about whether it was good or bad. I think there was a debate about whether it was acceptable as a, a threshold for impeachment. That's right, right. And I think that's changed now. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think the Trump supporters don't think that what Donald Trump did was wrong. I think they think that that is politics as usual or something that could be replicated. And I think that is, you know, whether you think that or not, the shift is important, right? The fact that we used to agree that something was over the line and the debate was, is it over the line enough to, to justify impeachment or removal versus now we just can't agree on what bad behavior is so long as the person behaving badly is part of my political team. That's right. You know, and I think, I think one of the things that I really worry about in, in the U.S. context is we talk about there's various analogies for you know tribalism and politics and so on. I think the better analogy is like a, a world a worldwide wrestling federation or WWE uh, sort of style combat <laughs> where it's all sort of yeah. orchestrated. You have your favored you know wrestler, but it's all for entertainment. And I think that is so dangerous. Like it's not it's not that we like this person because they got us the you know policy that we wanted or they made our life better. It's that they're amusing. They're making the right, the right people upset. All those dynamics are totally corrosive to a political system because entertainment is not the basis of good politics. And yet I think for a large section of the American population, that's become what politics is about. It's about your team beating the other team, your wrestler winning the match, and who cares what happens at the end as long as your side was victorious. Brian Claus's new book is titled Corruptible, Who Gets Power?, and how it changes us. Brian, I love the conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk to you. 